Hello, puppies and kittens. We are here today with Jeremy Peterson of Identity Pet Nutrition. Welcome to the Petropolis podcast, Jeremy. Nice to have Thanks. you. Thanks. Glad to be here. I, I found your food wild calling in 2012. Wild calling was such a great food, especially for us indies. I loved it. And then it kind of went away in 2018. So I'm jumping in without i'm going to actually have you introduce yourself tell us what you're doing and then i want to ask you a bunch of questions about what happened with wild calling perfect yeah my name is jeremy peterson i'm the founder president and ceo of identity pet nutrition and we view ourselves as a new type of pet food company we're really focused on ingredient quality um, and I always tell people getting to what the identity of that ingredient is, what the stories are. Um, we really view the future of pet food as human quality ingredients, regionally sourced, uh, GMO free, hormone and antibiotic free, really high quality ingredients. So we um, are unapologetically a meat, poultry and fish protein company focused on pet foods and providing the highest quality um, meats, poultries, and fishes that are delivered fresh, never frozen um, from regional farmers. And we make our foods in Quebec, Canada. Uh, we make them in Canada because of the quality we're able to get there. Um, with my past history and experience, really here in the U.S., manufacturers aren't focused on using the type of quality of ingredients that we like to use. And so that's a big driver, and we get in that later probably, of why we're doing what we're doing and why we make our foods in Canada. Okay, so let's start first with the quality of the quality of how of what you're sourcing. Are your products sourced from the US or from Canada? Or are you just manufacturing in Canada? I'm a little bit confused right. on that. So so uh, some of the ingredients will come from the United States, but we primarily source from Canada uh, within 500 miles of where we manufacture the product from smaller, uh, more regional farmers that don't use the conventional uh, um, factory farm techniques. So using techniques that are GMO free, no use of hormones, no necessary added antibiotics to get to a quality of product um, that uses ingredients that are much different than here. And I always highlight beef is probably the most prime example in the United States. We produce beef with specific risk related material so that's spinal cords, fluids, things like that. In Canada, that's not allowed. Uh, you have to use all SRM-free beef, um, also higher quality because you obviously don't have the spinal cords, fluids, some of those byproducts in the ingredients. Um, so that I always use that as a prime example of the difference in quality. And we're also using only uh, breast fillet and loin cuts. So we don't use whole carcass. Most canned pet food companies will use whole carcass. So I always tell people, if you can imagine a rotisserie chicken that you get at the grocery store and you take all the meat off of it, put it in your soup or whatever, whatever meat's left over in that carcass is typically ground down and put into canned pet foods. So we took a different approach with wanting to only use the uh, fresh breast, loin or filet cut which really drives a lot of the features and benefits of our products because we're able to produce a high meat diet that is low in minerals like ash, calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium. And so we actually have a lot of customers seeking us out because we're great for things like kidney disease where you want uh, 
animal protein, but moderate with low calcium, phosphorus, ash, magnesium. So that drives a lot of difference in our products to what's out there right now. Do you supply the micro or the, and the macronutrient profiles to your customers or whoever asks for it? We do. We do. Yes, we, yeah, we do. We think that's important. We think that's the future. Um, so we do have those readily available and we're constantly on a daily basis having conversations with our customers or with veterinarians, helping them through the micro and macronutrients and understanding our product more in depth. It needs to be done because a lot of marketing trends have driven kind of, I guess you could call it misinformation to a level. And so we're trying to help sort some of that out. The prime example I always use is a lot of customers call us and they go, if you're 95% turkey or 95% beef or 95% bison, why is your protein level not higher? And we always, that opens a conversation where we can tell them, you know, animal protein isn't all protein. There's a misconception that meat is really high in protein. There's no carbohydrates and moderate fat, which is generally true, but your protein level is not going to be the 30 or 35 or 40% that you see on a lot of pet foods or in canned foods, getting up to 12 or 13 or 14%. That's not the reality. And you can go to the USDA has the USDA uh, food ingredient database. And I always encourage our customers go there and look up raw chicken, look up raw turkey. And you'll be surprised if you take a, a turkey breast, for example, or chicken breast, to a lab and get a crude protein analysis, crude fat analysis, uh, moisture content, it's only going to come back about 16 to 22% protein. It's going to be significant water, probably about 70 to 74%. You're going to have a moderate fat level and very small, if any, carb level. Um, and I always tell people when you put that down into pet food, that's why we're a high meat diet, but we only have 8% protein. In pet foods, a lot of pet food companies are driving protein levels high with vegetable proteins. And so we're out there kind of going against the grain and telling people, hey, here's the reality. Pet food labels are listed prior to cooking. There's a lot of peas, legumes, chickpeas, potatoes, whatever it is. It's the actual protein source in your pet's diet. I know they list meat as the first ingredient, but when you cook it, that vegetable protein is going to be the primary protein source. And the difference you're going to get with an identity pet nutrition diet is your primary protein source and almost all that protein is going to come from animal protein. So we're doing constant um, education like that to really get across. Here's the reality of how pet food's made, the the constraints we have and try and bust through a lot of that marketing and get the reality across of, Hey, here's, here's the reality with pet food. Well, not every brand is using legumes or vegetable protein in their, in their uh, formulations. So, um, you know, there are brands that are high meat content like you. The, the wider overall trend in pet food, the reality is they're using a lot of vegetable protein and they're doing that because most pet food companies do a lo use low, lowest cost formulation. So they're trying to formulate to the lowest cost and there's this trade-off. How do we make it look like there's a lot of protein 
which is kind of the, the coefficient for me, which isn't necessarily accurate, but that's how consumers view it and get the lowest cost formulation. Vegetables cost less than meat protein. So far and wide, a lot of pet food companies look like they're high meat, but in actuality, they're using a lot of vegetable or grain proteins that really drive their primary protein source. Talk to me about your view of responsible and sustainable farming with how you're using meats because the pet industry is essentially about taking whatever the consumers aren't, you know, whatever humans aren't consuming and throwing it into pet food. So, and when you ask somebody, if you go to an AFCO meeting and ask someone from the USDA why they have certain requirements, they say it's about sustainability. They want to keep sustainability intact and um, moving forward, and this is why pet food is made the way it is. This is actually what I was told by a USDA um, member, and, <laughs> and she said, this is all about sustainability, and this is how we keep this country going. Tell me about your perspective about responsible and sustainable systems, because you're using fillets, breast fillets, loin cuts. Absolutely. We have a much different view um, you know, when we get into sustainability, there's a lot of focus on reducing plastics and carbon footprint, or like you just mentioned, hey, we're using byproducts. So those are actually, we're using what wouldn't be used and what would be put back in the planet or whatever. Um, so we're more sustainable. We take an alternative approach. Long term, our goal at Identity is to be the first closed loop pet food company. So controlling everything from sourcing to manufacturing. Uh, to how we get the product to market is important to us. And that's important because we are very focused on farming and supporting regenerative farming practices. So practices where we use a lot of uh, native pasture land mix, um, natural grazing of cows so that they till the land. Because the reality is those byproducts that are being used in pet food, those are likely coming from big producers like JBS or Tyson chicken that use factory farm techniques. And those techniques are heavily intrusive on the environment. They use tractors to till the soil. Uh, uh, There's a lot of subsidies with corn and soybeans uh, that prevent livestock grazing and keeping livestock, keeping the ground healthy. They're not necessarily using those native pasture land mixes that keep the soil rooted throughout the year. And we're not maximizing crop diversity. So we're focused on that overall holistic approach to farming and working with smaller farmers, because believe it or not, there's a huge focus on this type of farming in your smaller independent farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really much more, um, I mean, it's gonna be long-term, it's the solution we feel to making meat, poultry and fish work in the lifestyle of humans. I mean, pets need meat, poultry, and fish. So we're, we're never going to see a day where we're not harvesting a cow or we're not harvesting a turkey. We don't think. So how do we do it in a way that's less intrusive on the planet, that's sustainable and promotes agriculture through and through, through a holistic approach that uses techniques that aren't modern factory farm techniques. They're smaller, um, 
regenerative processes that take, in a lot of cases, a lot more time, money, patience, knowledge. I mean, it takes a lot of knowledge to know how to um, use sections of your farms to where you graze the cattle and then move them off to regenerate the soil. There's a lot of time and a lot of knowledge behind that. I mean, we've seen we're destructive, essentially. Yeah, we, we have a trend. If you look at the history of the United States, the history of the world, really, we have a trend where we use technology to drive efficiencies mm-hmm. and drive scale at the end of the day. So we've got a lot. I mean, farming's become controlled in the meat supply chain. JBS, we're located here in Colorado. Actually, the town we grew up in, JBS, they're the largest meat company in the world. They control a massive amount of the beef market, the pork market, the lamb market, the chicken market. And, you know, I always tell people that that's big to us is making sure that how we're doing it's sustainable and it doesn't hurt the animal. We're really proud. And every time we bring in our products, we're reminded by the documentation that our, our cattle, for example, is not stunned in the head um, before they're butchered. Um, it's a much more, uh, process that's driven by like if you imagine a local butcher shop it's Mm -hmm. not taking hundreds of cattle off of a cattle car stunning them in the head putting them on a conveyor belt and then butchering from there Um, it's a much different process that gets back to what farmers were doing a hundred years ago so for example the the prime example that i can use is our beef or larger cattle animals instead of uh, if you imagine shooting them in the head with a uh, metal device to knock them out and kill them or shooting them in the head with a, in some cases people would use a gun. Um, That's none of our products use those practices. So there's a lot of different methods that you can use from non-harmful chemicals that just kind of ease the animal to sleep um, and have them pass on from there and then respecting their body throughout the process. uh, with, if you imagine the process, if you were to, to, if you were to buy a cow off of a feed, off of a grazing pasture and take it to a local butcher, or if you hunt the way that you would, uh, uh, butcher your deer or whatever, those processes are used from there to break the cattle down uh, into the pieces that we use or that go on to become, uh, like bully strip sticks or, or chews and bones and all of that. So when you say your cattle aren't slaughtered the way cattle are slaughtered that are going through the whole uh, confined farming environment, how are yours slaughtered? Are they put down using um, essentially euthanized without the euthanasia drugs that could be toxic? So Correct. can you... Correct. So instead of being run off a cattle truck and stuck in the head and pass out, um, non-harmful chemicals are being used to ease them to to sleep and euthanize them. And then from there, break the animal down. Okay. Hey, are you offering tours to at your farms and uh, your processing facility? I'd love to. That's something we'd love to do. Obviously right now we can't even go to Canada uh, certainly, and uh, so that our wider consumer audience can see it too, one of our goals is to get a camera crew up there um, and really go through our processes um, so that we can help the consumer understand that we're, we're constantly told, here's how farming's done in the United States, and it's mm-hmm. done on a factory farm method. 
but that's quickly changing. And you're seeing even big companies like Tyson um, incentivize their producers to use more practical techniques that are more humane, that are more friendly on the environment. Instead of keeping chickens in a cage, let's let them roam. Um, so it's changing, but it's changing slowly. And we really believe the way that we get mass changes, not only through human food, but pet food as well. So that's why we're really starting to talk about this. Um, and as we get going to accreditate some of this, we want to become global animal, animal partnership approved on all our, our products. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the long-term view for us is to become a closed loop pet food company where we either have some of our own farms and work with farmers to use a process that we developed, that we've developed on here's the standards that we want to see and accreditate their farm and use materials from their farm um, that we then make long-term in our own manufacturing facility that's human grade um, and, and really control from a 360 view okay. so that we know our footprint with a closed loop plan. Are you shipping direct to consumers or are you working with retailers? I, I uh, we have kind of a three, three prong business model. So I'm a huge, I'm very bullish on independent pet stores. Um, I'm third generation in the pet food industry. Uh, my grandpa began servicing independent farm and feed stores, pet food stores back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, he actually owned a, a hardware store that sold pet food and bird food and things like that as well. And uh, then my family started a distribution company here in Colorado that was the first distribution company in Colorado to focus on better for you pet foods, more natural options. And so I grew up watching that company grow, went to college and ended up falling into pet food and developing Wild Calling, which you mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, and developed that, uh, gosh, from 2012, and I left in May of 2017. Um, so developed that from a zero to eight and a half million dollar company in really three years. Um, but through fate, it uh, just wasn't meant to be. So we left there and got focused on identity I I'd started working on it, I guess, August of 2017, I trademarked the name and was working on what we wanted to do, launched our first products in 2018. And so that whole transgression and supporting neighborhood pet stores, they're near and dear to my heart. I'm very bullish on the future of retail. I know a lot of people aren't uh, with COVID. We think retail is not going to go anywhere. Uh, so we want to be in retail and we want a healthy retail base. Um, we don't have distribution nation nationwide, but we do have five distributors, primarily on the West Coast. So California, Nevada, Arizona, Washington, Oregon, and we have Wisconsin and uh, Chicago and Vermont uh, covered with distribution. So we're available in neighborhood pet stores there, but there's been a lot of demand and a lot of interest in what we're doing. And the way we're doing it, our products really benefit pets. So to get in consumers' hands, we do have a healthy direct-to-consumer business as well mm -hmm. off our website, identitypet.com. Uh, but over the long run, we really want to add in distribution to those markets as well where we're not distributed and hopefully push those uh, consumers who purchase direct-to-consumer from us back into a local neighborhood pet store. 
because that's it's really important for us that we have a presence in independent pet. Your prices direct to consumer are are pretty high and understandably but, you know, compared to other brands. Significantly so- higher than you can <laughs> find in retail. Yes. And we do that. We do that again because of our support for independent pet stores. Um, believe it or not, uh, we I talk to almost every customer who purchases off our website if they call in. And when they call in, it's usually, "Hey, how can I find a pet food store?" Because I've learned it's more, it's least, it's less expensive in a store. Mm-hmm. And so, about ninety-three percent of our direct-to-consumer customers want a local neighborhood pet store and we're driving them back in with a value proposition. Um, For us now, we just have to build out distribution in the, what is it, 30 some states where we don't have a presence so that we can uh, help help pet stores grow. Yeah, I I remember when wild calling became available um, in New York and I jumped on it. I just thought, great, this is, there, there. you had a motto going, there was some information and these sales reps, unfortunately, at the, at both distributors you were with really didn't do your brand justice, I thought at that time. Um, but I remember selling a lot of it and my customers loved it. The only thing I didn't understand was the alligator protein. I think you had alligator, right? Yeah, we were the first company to come out with an alligator food. Or what dog is going to go eat an alligator? At, at Wild Calling, we were really known for novel proteins. Uh, pheasant originally was a big seller, and then we couldn't get it. Bison, rabbit, things like that. And mm-hmm. we constantly had requests for new things. So we eventually came out with a kangaroo. And we did, believe it or not, have requests for alligator. And so we had an alligator can. Uh, alligator meat. Obviously, they live in a swamp, and it's very high in bacteria and smelled very, very badly. So it wasn't really, didn't end up being too popular, but uh, some people loved it. <laughs> I'm sorry, but really, when we when we get down to sustainability and responsibility, alligator, you do have to sit back and say, are we doing the right thing with introducing these kinds of proteins to market? And are the animals really allergic or just intolerant and the owners are being lazy and trying to figure out what's causing the animal's inability to process whatever they're eating. So sometimes I just sit back and wonder, what are we doing here when it comes to being responsible? That's a good point, Ned. At Wild Calling Wild, um, I had a lot of responsibility and ability to influence the company from a certain standpoint. Uh, my brother and I, who's involved in identity now with me, didn't ultimately have final say there. So some of those products we brought to market were other people making those decisions. And when we started identity, we really looked at, okay, we did a lot of things great at Wild Calling, but where were the fights and things we wanted to do differently? And that was big on using sustainable ingredients, on using uh, regional sourced ingredients and especially using filet and loin cuts because at Wild Calling, there was a ton of bone going in that product. And we saw kind of the downfalls of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the proteins we're using, like kangaroo I mentioned earlier, I get a lot of requests daily for kangaroo at Identity. 
and we tell people we're just not going to use kangaroo in our diets because we don't believe in it. Um, we don't, while there's an argument that they're, they're a nuisance um, on the outback, there's a lot of data coming out otherwise. And when you break the protein down and look at it for a pet, it's really high in ash, really bony, just it really isn't the greatest protein source for a pet. And so we really avoid coming out with a product like that. Um, we've been very diligent in the products we have and how we've put them together in growing that and don't really want to take advantage of trends and things that come across um, like Wild Calling did some of. So uh, this actually leads me to something we were communicating back and forth via email and you wrote, I've heard both the founders of Method and Seventh Generation who are pioneers in sustainable home products say that they found out early in building their brands that they put too much emphasis on marketing towards an audience that wanted possible green sustainable products and just trying to change consumers' minds with an activist approach. Yep. Yeah, uh, to me, that really spoke to me. And I'd add Whole Foods, John Mackey in there. Uh, he, he talks very similar. And there's a lot being done. And when I mean activist approach, there's, there's a lot of focus on like plastics right now. And how do we reduce plastics? And that's going to save the environment. Or uh, we need to just be eating vegetable protein. And that's how we're going to save the environment. And Method, this, the, the founders of Method really spoke to me. They were the first I heard. They said, you know, when we came out with our products in Whole Foods or the grocery stores where we initially launched, we had a strong green message on our, on our product and we were going after a green audience, but we were, we were ignoring a wider audience and the ability to make change. There's just so much focus on a narrow focus. And here's the, the aspect that we're going to focus on with the environment. And there's a bigger picture to that. And to me, how you operate your supply chain, how you source ingredients, how the, the story behind those ingredients and how the animals are slaughtered and raised um, that go into it. And it gets down to, we don't want to make a customer feel bad because they might've fed a product that isn't sustainable in the past, or they might have different views. But as a company, we want to make a big impact through, we don't need recognition for what we're doing. Um, we come in on a daily basis. Here's our core values. We're not going to sway from them. We're not going to get hyper-focused in a certain area. We're going to improve across our company. Um, we have an initiative with our direct-to-consumer where we're going to, beginning next week, we won't use any more plastic in our packages. Um, we've gotten cardboard boxes for protection. Um, our whole supply chain initiative is how do we improve the suppliers we're working with um, so that their footprint is less, so that we're getting more sustainable meat, so that we continue to get GMO-free meat, so that farming changes, so we use less hormones and antibiotics, and really focus on the bigger picture and just doing what should be reality um, while a lot of companies are seeking recognition um, and are almost using it as a marketing ploy. We, okay. we think we can- I, I gotta more. interrupt here. That's, this is actually where I wanted to go with you. Um, with the Pet Sustainability Coalition, uh, their focus is on packaging. Packaging is a, my background is packaging. I 
come from the packaging world prior to being in PEP, and that was a long time ago. But um, a lot of focus on eliminating plastics and recycling, which has always been important. You and I went back and forth in email in our views on this. Are you saying that this is about marketing and not really about doing the right thing? Is that where you're going? Well, the, the the words into to a certain extent, I'd say that's a, absolutely how I feel. I feel there's a lot of companies saying, "Hey, there's a lot of people caring about sustainability right now, and so we need to make an impact in the area where we'll make the impact because it's the it's the easiest area." is our packaging. I mean, every packaging company out there right now is focused on how do we get uh, more recyclable packaging. So it's a really easy area to make a difference. And like you said, with the Pet Industry Sustainability Coalition, instead of focusing on farming practices and inputs into a branded product or on the distributor end, focusing on how do we get distributor vehicles into electrical vehicles, for example, or, or make a wider change on the supply chain we're focusing on a narrow area that risks a lot of um you're right you're wrong political activism mm -hmm. that you just don't feel is appropriate and long term cuts into efforts to make true change we think it needs to be a focus a wider focus in farming practices in changing uh, so the the demands for suppliers we work with it can't just be one area of focus and that's packaging because it's the easiest most prevalent area have you been approached by them or are you working with them in any way in uh, voicing your opinion and perhaps being being a lead person uh, and with this process with them perhaps they need more hands on board you know, we haven't uh, watching from the outside in. I'm always hesitant to come in and, and try and change an organization and their cause. Obviously, they are making some impact to a certain area. And we always want to wade away from being perceived as political. We believe in conscious capitalism and, and consciously building a business for the greater good of, the, of a wider society. Um, and to us, I tell people, recently you know within our whole world there's a lot of people i'm right you're wrong and in in my business whenever i make a decision that's going to impact someone for good and it'll probably impact someone uh for the worse and so i'm i'm very conscious of that and want to make sure we're not telling people hey you're wrong because you're doing this but rather create a conversation and get viewpoints out there um so that we we raise the tide and everyone wants to get better. And I just feel when you, you create an organization like that and focus in on that, it ultimately brings it political. And it, it, it I mean, companies are using it for marketing because it's popular politically right now to say you're sustainable. And I feel if you're gonna make a true impact, you don't need to wade into that. You just come to work and through your actions, you'll make change. Um, You're saying that they're more fluff than action here. That's what I feel like, more fluff or a narrower focus while ignoring some other areas. I mean, it's been a few years, but uh, back at Wild Calling, I had a discussion with the Sustainability Coalition on farming. And hey, here's the reality. We're not bad for producing a meat product, 
but here's how we're trying to improve. Here's the realities. And there really wasn't an interest in that story. I didn't feel, and I still, I still feel wider. There's not an interest. Uh, And that's why we're doing what we're doing and trying to change that Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, we realize there is this certain reality out there, but there's also a reality that a lot of smaller farmers are doing things a lot differently in a process that we probably all should look at and in making change on a big picture scale that I, like I said earlier, we don't need notoriety for, um, we just, we're confident in what we're doing and we know it's going to make a big impact over the long run on the lives of us as humans and our pets. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's interesting with the PSC, uh, there's a lot of brands that are now members uh, and you know, I, I look at the names of all those brands and I just think, how are they practicing sustainability? And this buzzword is now, I mean, it, it's a buzzword. It's sustainability is, has been commoditized to the worst, at the worst level. So I can't, unfortunately, take what they're doing as seriously as I was a few years ago when I first met them and spoke with a couple of their members at a trade show where I felt like, wow, maybe they are on the right path. Because at one point I spoke to somebody and they were unfortunately talking about protein as opposed to the animals that were being slaughtered. They kept calling the meats used in pet food proteins, um, protein sourcing. And I I remember saying to one of the members, why don't you call them the animals so we can look at that as leading the path in better care and better structuring of the farming system and coming together differently than calling them protein. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. I feel very- Broccoli has protein too. And, you know, I love broccoli, but you know, that has protein. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where I say it, it's, it's hard to kind of vocalize, but that's where I say, like you said, it's popular right now to be sustainable. Everyone signed up. It's a buzzword. And, but we're getting into a hole where it's like, Hey, if you're producing a product with meat, you're a bad company just because meat's bad. And we, there's, there's much, there's a lot more nuances to that that need to be understood. I mean, I listened to another podcast by the founder of Impossible Foods mm-hmm. and Beyond Meat as well. And they obviously sell vegetable-based meat lookalike products and they, they believe in what they do, but it's very much, especially with Impossible Foods, we want everyone eating vegetable burgers within the next 10, 20 years. And we want people not eating meat anymore. And the reality is I just don't think that's a good healthy view. It's telling a lot of people that they're wrong. It's telling a lot of people um, that it's politicizing an issue. Whenever you make someone feel they're an awful person for not eating meat, you you run a huge risk. And we think that risk is undoing a lot of good and getting getting regenerative farming practices and, and better farming practices out there. There's a huge risk to that. And it, it just can't be um, 
a sole focus. There's a lot of nuances to a lot of this and a lot of ways we can make an impact, especially in farming supply chains that need to be a focus. I mean, I tell everyone that I meet, I, and I, I've actually worked on a wider level with going to, to politicians and things and saying, hey, let's come up with a program instead of pushing kids into a four-year college, let's get them into community college and learn about uh, regenerative farming and create farming positions. And I tell everyone, I think the noble position now is a farmer and a farmer who's focused on doing better for the environment. But at the same time, a lot of these efforts are saying, no, we need to kill all farming except soybean farming and corn farming. And it, there's just a huge risk there that risks any, pro, any progress being realized on a wider scale. Yeah, I think I think there's a bias. You know, I think we're trying to simplify things that are incredibly complex. And from the beginning of time, you know, hunting was always present, and you know, um, finding food, whether it's uh, fruits and vegetables, or or we were hunting animals. That's always been part of uh, how we evolve. So. <laughs> Confined farming and destructive practices are what we need to start working on changing. So, um, and and you can't try to simplify it by just going to pea protein burgers or soy burgers. It's not as simple as that. But I understand what they their focus is. You know, it's it's changing a narrative, changing a mindset. I mean, there's a lot more to it. Like you said, I mean, I come from my brother and I grew up in one of the largest agricultural producing counties in the United States, Wolg County, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we grew up, uh, we lived kind of the edge of town and we would walk through prairie fields and farm fields. I remember um, as an elementary student right across the street was a farm and we would go over there um, pretty often. Now it's filled with houses and we've lost a lot of that natural agriculture in that land so looking at the impact of houses i mean we're overbuilding houses in the u.s how do we pot slow that down and keep farmland um in use how do we uh oil and gas has been a big impact on farming in the last 10 15 years how do how does that interact how does clean energy interact a lot of farmers are getting out of farming to put windmills on their farms so how, how does that interact? There's a wider picture that we've got to look at. And when you're just looking at packaging or just looking at the carbon footprint, and that usually is the focus on packaging or how we get rid of meat, it, we, we, we've got to be much more nuanced and start to learn and understand the reality and, and create a footprint where we can all coexist and and become more sustainable um, on a wider scale. Damn, Jeremy, you're so serious. Come on, we need to chill out here a little bit and let's let's <laughs> talk about the pet industry and how screwy they are. Well, I, I just I just want to wrap up there by saying uh, fewer than one in four people know mm-hmm. anything about regener- regenerative farming. Are you serious? That's a very small amount. So we've got to get some of this out there. And as a company, we're really focused right now on how we're talking about those practices um, because 
wait, like wait, I, where do you get those numbers? Where do you get that number from? I mean, I've, I, I actually, if I do eat any meat, which, which actually, whatever I order, I order from a regenerative farm in upstate that, New York. That's um, that, that stat comes okay. from foodinsight.org. Really? And that, one in, wait a second, give me that number again. One out of four people. One in four people. Fewer than one in four people have ever heard of regenerative agriculture. That's actually not a bad number. When you think but when, when, when asked, the interesting thing is when asked, over half of those people said they want to learn more about it. So there's a huge educational gap that needs to be closed. People should read some of Joel Salatin's books. They've been around for years. Joel Salatin's been around for years. And even with, um, you know, when I was work, doing some work with Cole Harrington, I mean, we were pushing information years ago uh, about regenerative farming. So um, it's, it should be standard. It should not be something that we should learn about. It should be how we are doing things. Exactly. And that's what's sad. And I understand that one in four where it's, um, where that, that actually is kind of depressing that it's just one in four where that should be the norm as opposed to not. Exactly. So, and there's, yeah. there's other areas of the world where I think it is, is more of the norm. I think Europe's come a long way. Um, and, and we've got to, we've got to make a lot of progress here in the U S. And if, well, you look, Russia's rejecting, um, pet food produced in the U S why? For GMOs. Well, I don't want to give Russia too much credit here, but, and actually I won't, but they they have other agendas, but yes, for GMOs and Mexico is, uh, will not be accepting any, um, GMO corn in the near future from the U.S. Right. So what's that going to do to the U.S. farming sector? Well, you, um, hope it, you hope it would make a lot of change. Actually, my grandpa is one of the oldest people to ever sell farm seeds over 50 or 55 years in the industry. And when GMO corn came out, I remember him saying, this is going to change uh, the corn industry. And he, at the time, he thought for the better. But when you look at it, um, farmers no longer have to plant another crop like squash or pumpkins at the base of their corn to keep out mm -hmm. um, uh, nuisances. Right. And that really cuts down into our soil um, and plant diversity in the ecosystem. And I remember uh, uh, when we got into the last, he passed away a few years ago, but a couple of years after he started looking and saying, hey, GMO corn's the worst thing that ever happened. And you can delve deeper. I mean, there's a whole debate on the farm bills and getting into um, crop insurance and a lot of, there's a lot of soybeans and corn that are planted because it's heavily subsidized to the farmer. Right. And so I think there's, we've got to look at this. Um, and I know it's Russia and Mexico, but we've got to look and say, hey, they're right. We do have to get GMOs out of our ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a lot of progress to make that hopefully we'll see um, these big companies start to take seriously. Yeah, it's almost like we're, we're going backwards as they're progressing. Yep, absolutely. And some of this, you know, for, for progress to be made, life's gotten so fast in the United States with email and technology. And some of it, I think we have to look and say, hey, we, we for 
100, 200 years use technology to become more efficient. I think in some ways we have to become more inefficient in mm-hmm. our processes, slow things down, understand better to get that progress. Um, and I, 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 everyone's talking about the technology, technological revolution now and speeding things up even faster. I really think the opposite. I think you're going to see things slow down. Um, I mean, our whole, the, the whole meat supply chain is still impacted a year after COVID and we could, it wouldn't be as impacted if we didn't have just a few slaughterhouses, if we had more regional um, butchers, mm-hmm. have a lot more sustainable food ecosystem. So there's a big picture and it gets into a lot of different facets, but Long-term to me, the solution, we have to slow things down a little bit, maybe become a little more inefficient, a little more cost inefficient to create a sustainable model, especially for agriculture in the United States. And a little less options, fewer options. We don't need, the supermarket doesn't need to have 7,000 different options in chickens. And I mean, come on. Right. And yes, humans need to stop consuming as much meat. When you get you there get into chickens and stuff too, you, you start delving into chickens. I mean, people don't realize there's a lot of chickens that are hatched here. They're put on uh, transportation to China where they mm-hmm. can then use things like uh, hormones to boost them up and you get a nice fat chicken wing. Um, but, you know... But that, then it's transported back to the U.S. Transported back to the U.S. And if they, you want to talk about carbon footprints, you're taking animals produced here, shipped overseas to China, and then transported, processed, and then transported back here and exactly. put in our pet foods or sold in Walmart for you know chicken wings for a football. All in, the, all in the name of efficiency, a lower price, and a bigger product. What I don't understand is how... Could that be at a lower price? That's something I don't understand. Well, with their yields, they're able to, the, the cost of labor in China is so much lower than the United States that they're able to cut costs there. They're able to use things like hormones. Which no, 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 Jeremy, I'm talking about we have, we're not putting any value on this animal's life. No, okay, yeah. And, from- and, not, and even on our own lives, we're willing to consume this shit <laughs> I think if you educated more people and told them from that perspective, through and through, they'd pay a lot more. I mean, there are certain restaurants, Buffalo Wings, like Buffalo Wings, and I like sports, so you eat a lot of sports when you watch Buffalo Wings. And there's certain restaurant chains in the U.S. that I know it goes through this process, and I won't eat at them um, because because of everything that's associated with what they do to produce their product. And I think if we had more education, very few people, it's surprising how many people are are unaware of the processes in the chicken industry. And I think, again, it gets back to education and, you know, we we have to get a bigger picture education to people on, on here's some realities and here's where we need to change. And we have a lot of, a lot of change. Part of that is also income. Um, You know, when you have, less income, you will buy less expensive. And equity is a huge factor here. And and I'm, I'm going to throw in some politics here. The only good thing about Trump was that he allowed all this stuff to come to the surface. 
in a very abrupt and angry way. And that's the only good thing about <laughs> those the last four years. Now, we need, you know, if, if we haven't woken up yet, for God's sakes. Um, we have a huge opportunity right now with younger generations to rethink. I mean, in this country right now, it's pretty much you go to college, get a college degree, and that's your token in life. And I think we very much have to reset that and focus on training people in high school with the reality of like I said earlier, farming education, mm -hmm. and really incentivize these people to go into what I feel are noble professions, um, because that's going to create a lot of opportunity and really start to, to solve some of these inequality gaps that we see. So let me ask you, you're, you have your own podcast coming up with uh, Identity Pet Nutrition. Um, is this something that you're going to be talking about? Is this something that you're going to be just probably? Yeah, about? it's a, very, very passionate about that. Um, I tell uh, the people that know me best often, um, you know, I'm very focused on how can we change education. And I, I went to college, I have a college degree. Um, but, you know, uh, maybe wouldn't have gone to college if there wasn't so much pressure. And, you know, there's a lot of negativity on farmers and, and it's really a noble profession or other professions, even like plumbing and uh, electricians, that we don't have enough of those common skill sets that we have to get more people in those skill sets and really no longer should those jobs be um, second to working in an office. Uh, they really need to be brought above and, and become the noble professions. The IT segment is where there is a big need for employees. So um, again, we're kind of sitting behind a computer now versus being on the land and producing. What's going to happen to how we can eat, to how we um, can survive, to how we flush our toilets or how we fix our sinks if um, the focus and the direction is going to be all on tech versus living. Exactly. Yeah, you, you've got to have a healthy balance and we're, we're just getting too focused on tech and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I was talking to someone recently in the past week and he told me that he works with school-aged children that are eight, nine, 10 years old. And it's kind of scary how comfortable they are on Zoom. They have their thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, how I get the teacher's attention in Zoom school and, and when you think about that, it creates a scary reality. Do we lose long-term human interaction? Mm -hmm. And I told this person, yeah, imagine you get all your ingredients, you're working from home, comes time to shut down. Do you and your girlfriend prepare a meal and pull up your friends on Zoom and we stop getting together in person? Um, and, and we continue down this route where things become more, more efficient, faster, um, is that sustainable? I don't think so. No, I think um, we're going to have a lot of psychological <laughs> issues. If, if we, well, we're we starting to see it uh, as a as a nation. We're more divided than ever, 
And when you look at the core that a lot of it's technology efficiency, I need answers today. Um, and it, it's, to me, that's just not sustainable for us. I mean, I think COVID has uh, caused a slowdown of that side, even though we have Zoom, I think it's brought a lot of attention to the need for human interaction and human contact. I think COVID has really opened up our eyes and given us the opportunity to take a step back instead of being stuck on that hamster wheel. Although it feels like you're on a hamster wheel every day these days being locked up, it's just, it's a different hamster wheel. It's like, I can't wait to get out to see my friends and connect and hug and go dancing. It's, it's become a different feel as opposed to, I got to get this done. I got to post this on LinkedIn so I can get comments about what I think. It's just, you know, I think we're communicating better. I think we're on a path. And let me bring it back to PET <laughs> because in the end, they bring us down to earth. They ground us. I think our animals have been the saviors and they have been the grounding factors during this process. That's why so many animals have been adopted or unfortunately purchased. Um, but a lot of people have taken on they, they aren't taking on uh, new pets, even when they didn't have any, because they wanted that connection that was And missing. not only the people that, I mean, 3.3 million people or whatever that adopted or got a new pet, not only them, the, the great thing is we're seeing existing pet owners care a ton more about nutrition, especially cat owners. For too long, cat nutrition has been ignored. Amen. And, and it is, it is great to see the amount of people that we have on a daily basis calling or chatting in with us. Hey, I'm on a grocery store food. I understand no longer. I understand it's no longer the best option. I want a premium option. Uh -huh. And to me, that is great to see as well, because we still have a long way to go with changing the mindset for a lot of pet parents who still view them as just a pet. Mm -hmm. bringing them into know they are a member of our family and I want the best nutrition for them. I want to do absolutely what's right. And the amount of people that are coming into that mindset, it's just so fulfilling to see. It is. But here's, here's my question for you. The industry as a whole does a great job marketing and making claims about how great brands are, right? I mean, you walk into a Petco, and Merrick, you know, on the, it's in your face. They're great. It's healthy. It's amazing. Um, Castor and Pollux, it's organic, you know, and knowing what I know, I'm, I sit back, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I make a face and I keep going. And then you see instinct, which is much better. But so the pet owner really is in a state of confusion they really don't know how to differentiate quality versus marketing. And that's where people like myself and you come in. I think you would be looked at as kind of being jaded because you have a brand. Um, so that's why education does matter. That's why, you know, like what I do and people that are actually putting it out there, I get frustrated with bloggers and um, influencers who put out lines of shit 
you know, and the brands that actually hire them. Um, yeah, there's way too much of that happening right now. Yes. Um, that's been a big frustration of mine lately because we take an intense, we do an intense amount of research work with a lot of animal nutritionists and people with doctorates and things in pet nutrition and the misinformation that's being spread out there through influencers or through big influential websites or message boards are becoming a big, big um, source of this by the internet's great, but a lot of people take it and say, Hey, the internet's going to make me the authority source. And some of the information that's being spread out there is actually causing a lot of detriment and harm for our pets that we've definitely got to find a way to tackle. Right. And that is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you because one, you have a history with your grandfather farming, um, you and your brother with wild, uh, wild calling and the lessons you learned there. And, um, everything I've read about identity and how you're putting it out there. I just found it quite interesting. Again, I'm not promoting any brand, but I want to put products out there that make people think about the choices they're making. Absolutely. Open their eyes that it's not just what's sitting on the shelves of PetSmart and Petco. And the same for independence, um, they need to look further and deeper. And it's not, you'll get good margins if you're bringing in brands that are not being shipped by Chewy or Amazon necessarily. And that's another thing we want to talk about carbon footprints. How many packages are being shipped every day? The trucks from the distribution centers. How is that helping the environment? As fast as we want to connect, we're also disconnecting. Exactly. I mean, just this quarter, we'll ship over 600 packages to people's houses. That's obviously a massive footprint. Most of those go through an airplane or a truck mm-hmm. um, with a huge footprint. And so, again, that's why we we want to put people in back in the local pet food stores. But there there is, and I feel like the retailer, you know, I, I on multiple levels, we're setting out to challenge the way that existing things are done and hopefully improve. And part of that's through the way supply chains work. And I feel like retailers are much more in tuned with products who are trying to make a difference. They want new products and understand the importance of new products in their stores. But part of that's got to be going to their supply chain and their distributors as well and saying, hey, we're going to start to heavily divest this bigger brand because they're not making a change. Mm -hmm. And here's the brand that we really want you to take a look at because I've done a lot of research and they're making a change and bring them in or I'm going to start to shift my dollars or or do whatever I have to do because we're seeing in in the pet industry and it's not just our industry um, talking to people in other industries. There's a huge disconnect with, traditional distribution that sells to offline channels mm-hmm. that's preventing new products who are doing things much differently and much more conscious about their impact they're holding those pro- products from getting back from getting into the market in favor of bigger brands who are are focused on optimization and making a dollar and don't necessarily care um, about the impact on as wide of a scale 
but but they are on the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Uh, nah, <laughs> shut up, Tats. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold my comment. It's interesting that you know we have distributors there too now. So it's I always sit back and I'm like, ah, oh, why are the distributors there? Of course, they want to be part of the process and putting the. Um, you know, the bins in the stores and distributing them to the stores where the packaging can come back and go back into the store and it brings the consumer back. But um, again, I think we're, we're doing everything roundabout to keep the money where it was exactly. as opposed to distributing the money differently and more equitably. And that's what we're missing, the equitable part. As much as people want to talk about that, that's going to be the next buzzword, equitable. Um, <laughs> sustainable and equitable that's what we are so <laughs> jeremy thank you for doing this today i really appreciate it i had fun with you even though you were totally too serious <laughs> absolutely thanks for having me well you know I'm, I'm just very passionate about um a lot of these subjects what we're doing and uh you know i think you have to talk with talk about them in kind of a serious nature um, because they are big issues. And I, I hope I can uh, come out to Colorado and uh, visit with you soon, and maybe we can head to Canada and you can show me your slaughterhouses. Most know, definitely. Weird thing. weird thing, but that's what I do want to see. I want to see what it's all about. When you see it at its core, at how where it starts, I think it, it gives you a perspective that um, we kind of choose to be blind to as consumers. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, the there was a big learning process for us in looking at the facilities we were going to use to make our foods and going to the facility where we now make our foods and comparing it even to some human food facilities where just visually seeing it and seeing the processes um, really helps with understanding and the nuance and in small areas where you've got to delve deeper and here's why this product is a higher quality or is safer because of a step they take and seeing that definitely helps understand all of that. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeremy Peterson. We kind of kept going and we kept talking. So I will be posting an extended version of this, the unedited unedited and extended version of this as a bonus episode. So if you want to hear more, make sure you have subscribed to the Petropolis podcast so you can be notified. And if you're not a subscriber, click on that button and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.